The song we're listening to is called Pink Moon. It was written by the English musician Nick Drake and released on his third and final album, also titled Pink Moon, in February of 1972. Tragically, Drake died two years later at only 26 years old, and his final album sold less than 5,000 copies. Fast forward 27 years to 1999. According to legend, Volkswagen ad execs hear Pink Moon being played by an employee and decide it's the song for their first ever ad on the internet. And practically overnight, Pink Moon goes to number five on the Amazon sales charts and sparks a resurgence of interest in Nick Drake's music. Our next guest is the songwriter and music journalist Jeff Slate. Jeff, welcome to The Future of What? Thanks for having me, Portia. So you wrote an article for Esquire in which you discuss Nick Drake's Pink Moon and about its startling resurgence thanks to an advertisement. Can you give us the rundown on that? Well, it's it's really interesting. You know, Nick's catalog had fallen. I mean, he he never really caught on in his lifetime probably around the time he started to make records that people were maybe paying attention to a little bit. He committed suicide. You know, he had suffered problems with depression his whole life. It's a family issue as as well. And, And so his catalog just kind of fell dormant. He never really sold records in his lifetime. And, you know, over the years, Island Records did some reissues of his albums, but never really did any big push behind them. And then sometime in the maybe 80s, some enterprising people at Island got the idea to put a little push behind them. And they kind of gently pushed Nick's catalog out there into the world at a time when there were just so many other artists. And he started to catch on with sort of tastemakers. And I I think, you know, he caught the ear of Robin Hitchcock and Paul Weller and people like that who... You know, it's funny, that would end up paying dividends for them in the 90s when, you know, they would see resurgences in their own careers and be able to talk about him in the press. But this guy, Caddy Calloway, started working Nick's catalog very kind of carefully with the family. And he took it on as kind of a, a personal mandate. I mean, he a labor of love. And and it it, it was kind of remarkable. He had gone from doing A&R and working at labels to managing acts, and he decided he wanted to manage an act who was dead. He felt like a lot of people were doing that and kind of doing it wrongly or poorly, and he saw Nick as kind of the perfect 
person to, to do that with because the family was still there. They had opinions about how his catalog could be presented, and he had a real empathy for the, the music. He'd kind of grown up with it, been introduced to it via sampler records that Island used to put out in the 70s and, and kind of discovered his whole catalog over the course of, of the years. And so he put things out there into the world and, you know, did a compilation with Ryko Disc after much, const- you know, Island wanted nothing to do with it. They'd earned their money back on the 3,000 pound advances they'd given Nick. And they were kind of like, okay, well, we're fine with this. And Chris Blackwell was kind of, you know, laissez-faire about it. He just didn't really care very much. So Caddy took this on himself to do a compilation called Way to Blue with Ryko Disc. And it really caught on, I think, you know, sort of every college student in that was maybe 89, 90, 91 had that in their dorm room, he, he joked with me. And it caught on in a very grassroots manner. And, you know, he was very careful when, you know, offers came in from movies or television commercials. He told me about McDonald's wanting to use a song and things, which would have been great. But the family didn't need the money, and he didn't think that was right for Nick's trajectory. And so, you know, at at some point in the 90s, the people who had bought that Way to Blue compilation became advertising executives who were aspiring to, you know, feather their nests at these, you know, they were young and ambitious. And a guy came to him and said, you know, here's the idea, and sort of had a storyboard for it and so forth. And, you know, he presented it to the family, Nick's sister mainly, and they liked it. And they were very careful to sort of see rough cuts and be involved in the process. And there were some directors as well who, who came to them and, and did that. But that use in the Volkswagen commercial came about from, you know, oddly enough, them saying more no than, they, than it did them saying yes. In other words, they would get a lot of offers because Nick's catalog was relatively easy to acquire as a license for by advertising people or film people. And they said no to almost everything, except when they felt it really served the story or it didn't sort of bastardize the song. And so this came up and they really liked the storyboard. They liked the idea. They liked the ad agency. They thought they were sort of empathetic to Nick's, Nick as an artist and put it out into the world. And it then became this other thing you know it it probably sold more far more nick drake records and put him on the map than it did volkswagen jettas i think that was the car they were you know advertising at the time Cabriolet, and i think, I think. everybody yeah everybody <laughs> of a certain age remembers that commercial and it's you know it's one of those things there's not a lot of commercials from you know the late 90s that are on youtube but that's one of them and it's it has you know thousands of views because it really is a remarkable sort of a music video without being a music video. So that's the, maybe too long, but the short version of the of the, the history of the commercial, at least. And that was a particularly special commercial because it was the first time they were putting an ad on the internet. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of a new format for something like that. So it did sort of have that potential to be a little music video. Yep. It, it was a strange you know, confluence of things. I think a, a lot of artists who were toying with the internet I mean, myself as a songwriter, I put out an album in 98 and offered it, you know, sales online, just physical CDs, not not sort of MP3s and some streaming early. I think it was like real audio samples. But 
you know, we sold a lot of CDs via the Internet when we expected to sell none. And I just chalked it up to, oh, well, it was the Christmas season. It's new and whatever, the Internet being relatively new in the late 90s. And it, it wasn't that. I think the artists who, who toyed with new media early on, even though it was the Wild West, saw things, you know, really kind of mushroom in a way they didn't expect. David Bowie talked about that, and Trent Reznor has talked about that. So I think this was just sort of part and parcel of that. It was, it did feel new and fresh. It didn't feel like an old person's commercial. It didn't feel like a traditional way of presenting either a song or the product they were trying to sell. And it kind of dovetailed with the early rumblings, the sort of Wild West nature of the internet at that time. And it really sparked something different because from that moment on, I think people saw the potential for licensing as not just necessarily co-opting a song, an artist's song, but rather as sort of adding art to art. Yeah, absolutely. I think there were a swath of directors at that time, and certainly Quentin Tarantino is probably the foremost, who utilized music that you were maybe familiar with, but more likely didn't know the artist or didn't know the song, but used it very effectively, not to kind of help tell the story, but as sort of an emotional cue. And I think, you know, Martin Scorsese had done that, but a little more obviously than Quentin Tarantino did. And then there became a lot of copycat directors who did that, some very effectively, some not so, but it did become a new way of utilizing the original versions of songs that you, your parents might have had the 45 when you were a kid and you remember it and you, you have an emotional connection to it, but it was using it to sort of give you emotional cues rather than the old style, literal, the lyrics kind of tell the story of what you're seeing on the screen. And I think that was very true of the Pink Moon commercial and very true of a, a lot of uses in advertising and film in the late 90s, 2000s. And what do you think about the, I mean, the story that you tell is very thoughtful curation of a catalog by a specific person who knew a lot about the music industry. Do you think that that's necessary for this kind of success to happen to an artist? Well, I mean, you know, it always comes down to the song, ultimately. I mean, I think you can, you know, the old saying, you can kind of put lipstick on a pig. I mean, you can break a song that's maybe mediocre but catchy by just repeated listenings, repeated viewings, that kind of thing. But I, I think there, there are any number of ways to utilize music in a song, and artists can be totally mercenary about it. I mean, I'm, I've worked with Pete Townsend in the past, and we've talked about his use of catalog. And his thing was, when he started to sell the Who catalog, mainly three or four songs that everybody kept asking for, and everybody knows, you know, Who Are You? and Won't Get Fooled Again, Bob O'Reilly are on CSI and all these other shows, just about any action show or procedural, police procedural nowadays. And, you know, from his point of view, radio had kind of died. And for a new audience to remind his old audience that they, the Who were still out there and he was still out there as a songwriter and that those songs still existed, but also to attract n new listeners and younger people to the songs, he wanted them out there. And he was very aggressive about that. And my teenage son is very aware of those songs and all his friends are. 
And they're less aware of, say, the Rolling Stones, who are not as aggressive because of that. I mean, they're, they're on TV all the time, and, and I, those songs, and, and they're used in car commercials. And you can begrudge that. And certainly as an artist, you can choose not to do that, and you can choose the more sort of empathetic, more thoughtful way to approach things. And that may have a longer tail for your success. But the impact is pretty profound. I mean, I licensed some of my songs and the uptick, uh, you know, I was fortunate they, they were in big shows, One Tree Hill and Gossip Girl, or the sort of big ones. And, you know, I still, many years later, get royalty checks, re- you know, and residuals for those performances, for those uses. And my other songs that I did not license, I, you know, I just get sort of the modest royalty payments from, C- well, not even CD sales, but MP3 sales or streaming. So, you know, I think there there are many reasons to do it from an artist standpoint, not the least of which is more people become aware of you and want to know more about you if the music touches them. But I think the key is the performance and the song have to be special. Jeff Slate is a songwriter and music journalist. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? Thanks, Portia. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking about the value of catalog. We'll be right back. I'm Portia Sabin, and today on The Future of What, we're talking about the value of catalog. Catalog is the name for songs that are owned by record labels or musicians that aren't new, but rather reside on artists' older albums. Catalog is driving a lot of conversation in the music industry right now, and our next guest has jumped into the fray with a study showing that 95% of catalog is irrelevant to most listeners. Mark Mulligan is an analyst at Media Research, and he joins us by phone from London. Mark, welcome to the future of what? Hi, thanks for having me. So can you describe for our listeners your anatomy of a digital catalog chart? Sure. So throughout the, the history of digital music, you know, so going right back to the days of iTunes, let alone what's happening these days with uh, the streaming era, there's been a catalog arms race. Music services have been boldly stating just how many tracks they have as almost as a sort of a, a stamp of, um, of quality. And, and that's really accelerated in scale over the last four or five years because we've had so many more people releasing music with lots of services and, uh, that enable a bedroom artist to be able to get their music straight onto Spotify and iTunes, etc. And 
we've seen a proliferation of new music getting out there, lots of small labels putting out music as well, and then a huge amount of filigree and things like um, karaoke versions, deliberate sound-alikes that are only ever intended to try to trick people into listening or buying, appearing to be the original track. And, you know, there's a lot of money to be made from that, from all the people who put that money up, and the music services love having the big numbers. You know, so just over the last few years, the average catalogue size has grown from the high 20s of millions to the mid-30s of millions, and are growing at between 100 and 150,000 new tracks every single month. And when you actually break that down, it means that, you know, if you've got this huge catalogue of, say, 25, 30 million songs, the actual amount that people listen to is really actually quite small. The majority of it, about 80% of it, is hardly frequented at all. There have been studies to show that there are millions upon millions of songs in, in music catalogues that have never even been listened to once. Not much, but not even listened to once. So you then get to the core catalogue, and the core catalogue is the, the music that's listened to to some degree of frequency you know, in, in most places of the world, and that's around about 20% of the catalogue, and depending on how big the total catalogue is, that's between 5 and 6 million. Um, and that's really where we go back to when iTunes was big. You know, that's the numbers they used to talk about. But the actual share that people listen to a lot, then we get to a tiny little share, and it's really only about a quarter of a million tracks that are listened to frequently by a significant number of people. And in a recent blog post, you said, you, you called what we've got in the streaming place right now, the streaming market, the $9.99 all-you-can-eat model. And what is it that you find problematic with that model? So the all-you-can-eat model is absolutely fantastic if you're a, a music aficionado, somebody who really loves, loves music. Because if you love music, then you've got the appetite, the interest, and the expertise to go and find the music you love. You know, and you, you know where to look to find other music that you think you're probably going to like. You're going to know which, who, you know, which playlist to follow and which sites to look at, etc. And you get lots and lots of value. If you're a more mainstream music fan, who maybe only buys the occasional album here and then, or you know, the occasional single, or just streams music on YouTube, then you actually rely upon people pointing you where to go. And actually, all the music in the world can suddenly seem like an absolutely bewildering proposition. In fact, this, you have a paralysis of choice, a tyranny of choice, where there's so much choice that for the mainstream music fan, it's effectively no choice at all. And so what they end up doing is just going for the familiar. They'll go for the charts. They'll go for the uh, what's recommended by the music service that happens to be on the front page, um, which is typically where most people go, and that's dominated by the superstars, which means you get a self-fulfilling prophecy where that small amount of core capital gets even more frequented because the mainstream music consumers don't have the time, inclination, expertise to actually go and dive into, into deeper capital. And you have a suggestion for a solution to this problem, which is niche playlisting? Yes, I, I think there's probably a... Uh, a couple of ways in which uh, the, the the challenge of the tyranny, tyranny of choice can be addressed. One is actually an enforcement side of things. So, I you know as perhaps a controversial suggestion, but first of all, I think that karaoke tracks um, should be put in a different catalogue. You know, not getting them away. So you know, there's a lot of people love karaoke. Not going to take anything away from the value of those karaoke tracks, but they should be put under 
another section of a, of a music service so that they don't clutter up results. Because often it's difficult to tell which, you know, whether it's a karaoke track you're listening to or the, uh, you're, you're about to stream or the actual, the actual original track. Next, and this is, you know, for, for me, you should, shouldn't have a, a, a second of hesitation, is getting rid of all of the filler dribble. So what I mean by that is all of the sound alikes, the tracks which are cynically produced to sound exactly like the original in order just to generate cynical revenue. They should be stripped out immediately. Then you're left with a smaller amount of catalogue to deal with, still bewildering for many. So that's where I think the niche playlists come in. If we think about it, even though most of us will say we like lots of kinds of music, there's probably a few kinds of music we like best. And so building curated playlist services just around individual genres, individual styles of music, and selling them at smaller prices that reflect that they're just one genre, that could be a way to not only unlock the music catalogues, it could be a way to unlock the potential of music subscriptions, which right at the moment are still a niche proposition. Who do you see uh, doing the curation of these niche playlists? Well, there are many candidates. Um, let's just take, an, a, take a, you know, a single genre as, a, as, a, as an illustration. If we were to have an EDM play, you know, an EDM service, and let's say it was packaged up and you got a dozen playlists uh, a week, and you paid three ninety nine for it, and some of those playlists are um, compilations that you know, well known dance compilations, and some of them will be curated by the in house editors, but other ones very obviously will be curated by big brands in EDM. So some of those could be DJs, some could be producers, some could be festivals, some could be clubs, be the key music journalists. Some could be, you know, sort of potential curators. When you dive into a genre which has a passionate following, whether that's, you know, Latin, Christian, jazz, blues, classical, EDM, it doesn't matter. But once you get into a genre and the fans of a genre, there are lots of very obvious figureheads. People are trusted and recognized arbiters of taste within that genre. I think that's a fine idea. I just wonder how we would entice those people to create the playlists if there wasn't a real financial incentive for them to do it. So I think, you know, incenting curators is obviously, you know, a big issue. And it's, 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 a, it's an issue which is at the moment being grappled with in, in the All You Can Eat services. Over here in the UK, we've got um, Ministry of Sound, a you know, very well-established independent uh, dance music focused label and they actually had a court case with Spotify over whether Ministry of Sound should effectively be getting paid some sort of fee for, for curating. Um, that was settled out to court which means that that decision is still you know essentially one remaining to be challenged um, but with this great irony that curation is what all of these music services are saying that is you know, what they position around this. We, you know, we've got the best curation, the best programming, the best editorial. And yet curation doesn't have any monetary value in the, in the streaming economy from a, from a consumer's perspective. You know, the playlist is the currency of streaming. Yet whoever plays, pays for a playlist. You know, so I think that's, so you're absolutely right. Huge challenge about how you do it. But ultimately, I think this is something that all music services are going to have to learn how to do. That is how to ensure that they pay for some of the most valuable component of what they're about, and that is curation. Mark Mulligan is an analyst at Media Research, and he has joined us by phone from London. Mark, thank you so much for your time. That's my pleasure. Stay tuned for more Catalog Talk on the future of what.
Matt Daniels is the editor of Polygraph. He joins us on the future of what right now. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thank you. So you guys have this great chart at poly-graph.co that people can check out. And it is sort of a, a play count study. It shows you guys looked at the play counts on Spotify between 1990 and 99. Is that correct? Yeah, roughly. So your chart shows which songs are the most popular songs on Spotify, which have gotten the most plays between those years. I mean, the songs, not during those years, but actually the songs from those years. Can you tell us what you found? Yeah, so the idea was to look at present-day popularity of music throughout time. And I had billboard data going back to roughly 1950 through today. So the idea was to compare popularity of music in its day and then having the second data point of Spotify data giving us an idea of how popular this music is today. And then attempting to normalize the data as much as possible by just looking at Spotify plays for 2014. Cool. So this chart that we can look at is just the years 1990 to 1999, but you actually have data for since 1950? Yeah. So the article shouldn't has data going back to 1950 through 2005, which is roughly like 10 years, any song older than 10 years old. Wow. That is really, that is really cool. Now, you only looked at songs that charted on the Billboard Hot 100, right, from the 1990 to 1999 population? Yeah, so the idea was that since I had Billboard data that gave us an idea of how popular music was in its day, that would exclude any song that never charted. So I believe Stairway to Heaven, as an example, never charted in its day. Uh huh. So that would be excluded from a list. Gotcha. That would be an interesting thing for you guys to publish is the stuff that never charted in its day, but that's really popular nowadays. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird data set because it's basically all music ever. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. So the surprises on your chart are like songs like the song that we played right before we introduced you, which is Save Tonight by Eagle Eye Cherry from the year 1999, which has over 21 million plays on Spotify. What do you think accounts for the popularity of a song like that, which is really, I mean, super one-hit wonder? Like, what? why is it popular on Spotify today? Yeah, like, what do you think causes that popularity? Well, on one hand, uh, I'm not sure how old you are, but you have certain connotations of that song being a one-hit wonder and maybe, like, very sad-like connotations. But Spotify's... Uh, user base actually skews pretty young. So that song came out in 1999. Anyone younger than like 20 uh, has no no cultural bias for that song. So what makes that song interesting is probably that it's to like an 18-year-old kid in high school. It's no different than any other song that they're finding from the late 90s. So that's what I would say Like my, what's interesting to me about the success of a song like that. That's so interesting. I mean, how do you feel about that? Because basically what that suggests is that for a huge population of Spotify users, music is kind of context-free. Yeah, and and it's always been this way. So if you were to listen to your parents' generation music, really anything that you weren't alive or maybe younger than 10 years old when it was released, it is context-free. And when they look at you 
listening to their music, they might be shocked at what you gravitate towards. Yeah, so so Spotify is absolutely it's it's actually no different. We just have a lot of data around what exactly those listening habits are. Do you have any kind of correlation or would you be interested in doing some kind of correlation with songs that have gotten advertising spots or syncs, you know, sort of high profile syncs? Because I wonder about that with some of the, the songs on your chart. Yeah, so plenty of things affect any music's popularity. I mean, this is something that the record industry has known for a while, that if it's in advertising or if it's in a movie or if it's in a soundtrack or if it's covered or if it's on Glee, I mean, there's a number of things that affect a song's popularity. So the thing to be careful about is whether it's correlated or causally related. If a song's popularity is because of the fact that it was in a certain form of media, or maybe it's just popular and therefore it's in that media. So so there's definitely a lot of complexity around what you're speaking about. And I haven't really dived deeply into something like that just because of the enormous complexity in even identifying the songs that are featured in certain types of media. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, you know, I did a little bit of research on the Proclaimers song that's on your chart, I'm Going to Be 500 Miles. That's got over 14 million plays on Spotify. And so I went and did a little look, looking around about that song because, you know, that song was famously in several sync placements that sort of upped its profile. And according to Wikipedia, that one song makes five times what the Proclaimers entire catalog combined makes for them in terms of Mm -hmm. money. So it can really make a big difference in an artist's career to have that one song get either a good sync placement or some kind of, you know, to be brought to the surface in some way. Of course. I mean, catalogs are worth probably arguably even more now that streaming is far more pervasive. So when you think about the Proclaimers and their revenue streams today, before they were probably banking more on repeated use in movies and soundtracks and commercials, whereas now actually like streaming is probably a really viable channel for them to stay relevant. But no, I don't think that, that surprises me at all. And in fact, I'd probably imagine that most artists probably have a few songs that more or less play into a Pareto principle of 20% of their music generates 80% of their revenue, and then maybe in this instance it's even higher. Definitely. We spoke earlier in this show with Mark Mulligan, who's an analyst at Media Research in London, and he had a chart that showed that only 1% of catalog is really creates the bulk of revenue for artists, you know, the 1% of the total catalog that's out there on Spotify, and only 5% is what he would call frequently listened to. So it sort of makes 95% of all catalog irrelevant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think what you're kind of saying and what I think I would say is that there's a lot of potential in that 95% because you never know what's going to end up, you know, on a compilation or in an ad or somewhere that suddenly brings it into popularity and then boom, you know, streaming just goes crazy. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to our earlier point that there are plenty of songs throughout history that were never popular in their day have, and have slowly grown in popularity over time, which which definitely makes catalog music more interesting as like an asset if you're an artist or a record label. And the other interesting thing is, to your point earlier, like 1% of the catalog drives like 90% of the revenue. Something like half of 
Spotify songs have never been listened to. They have, they have zero plays, which isn't surprising, again, because it's kind of a buffet of all music from any artist and anyone can upload anything. So, yeah, I think I think all those points are definitely prescient and, and interesting, and I could definitely get behind them. Do you think there's that that's a problem, the fact that so many songs are not listened to? I mean, do you see that as something that we should be trying to remedy, or do you just sort of see that academically as you know, oh, that's of academic interest. I mean, I think you have to kind of, we would have to go in to figure out like, well, what are we actually looking at? So is it half of all songs that have never been played that are released by like a major record label and they have significant investment behind? Or is it just actually the entire internet? So anyone that can upload a song to Spotify. And in which case, like, yeah, I'd expect that probably to be about right. In fact, most artists, if they have, like, or this probably is the case with writing on blogs or even self-published books, like, I would doubt a lot of them sell over a thousand copies. Uh, so, so those dynamics probably exist in music as well. But I think I'd definitely be interested in looking at where there are barriers to entry of all of the, the tracks from Motown, for example they probably place their bets way less frequently. And I would bet that the listening habits show a curve where there are there are definitely very, very popular songs, but I, I don't think there would be very many unpopular songs, if that makes sense. Absolutely, especially when you think about genre. You know, if, if when you factor in genre, because there's certainly, I would assume, people who, for example, Motown, that's a good example, you know, they love that sound, they're going to listen to a lot of that type of music, not just the most popular. Yeah, and especially in genre, you have people who listen to music as albums. So if, if you look at those songs that have never been played before, probably because they're deep in an album, and <laughs> unless you're listening to an album um, in, in, in its completeness, like, you never get to that song. So if it's something... If it's a genre where it lends itself to listening to a full album, I think you probably have a lot, a lot more of a distribution of listening across all of an artist's tracks or all of the genre's tracks. I think you're right. I would agree with that. And that would be an interesting study to do. So I have now given you about seven assignments, <laughs> and I went to see some of these studies. <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. Matt Daniels is the editor of Polygraph. Matt, thank you so much for joining us on The Future of What? All right. No problem. Thank you. You're listening to The Future of What, and we're talking about the value of catalog. Right now, we're going to talk to Jim Selby, who's the president of AdShare. Jim, thanks for joining us on The Future of What. Happy to be here. So you spent the large part of your professional life in publishing, correct? No, I spent the large portion of my career on the label side, and uh, for a little, little shy of two years, I was with a major independent music publisher in Nashville. Oh, I'm glad I asked you that in public, that I did not know that about you. That's <laughs> good. Brings that right out. That's cool. Okay. So you've been working in publishing recently. Mm-hmm. So I thought you would be a good person to ask about catalog, because, of course, publishers are quite concerned with catalog. Mm-hmm. So can you explain really how sort of catalog management works in the world of publishing? Sure. There's different kinds of catalogs, I guess. At you know, at a music publisher, there would be your your active catalogs, which have been released on uh, and commercially and commercially available, and then you have catalogs that would unreleased compositions that would be waiting 
to be pitched to record labels for cuts on albums and singles and all that kind of stuff. And then you have kind of a non-traditional catalog of, say, film and TV music that would be composed music for television shows and, and major motion pictures and all that kind of stuff. So those are kind of how we would view catalog. And they all kind of operate a little differently. The catalog of commercially released or active titles, you know, you're hoping for performance income, which is the majority of the income, mechanical income, and sync licensing income kind of make up the profile of revenue from, you know, from that, you know, kind of bucket of, of catalog. And then the kind of uncut song catalog, we're trying to get those released by record labels. Some of them may go direct to sync. Some of them may go, you know, to record labels to be cut into albums. And then we have the, and then of course, there's not much revenue generated on that catalog unless, of course, an uncut song uh, is pitched to an advertising agency or film and TV for synchronization in, in one of those kind of media. And then, of course, we have the film and TV catalog, which the majority of the income comes from the cable broadcast side. So there would be no radio performance and virtually little sync and no mechanical income. So that, that's kind of the income streams and how I see, you know, kind of three bucks of catalog for music publishers. So I think what's going on, or at least what I understand right now, is that there's this interest, this sort of rise in interest in the investment community for record label back catalog, which would be one of the categories of songs that you've talked about, which is released music, music that has been released on various albums over time, but not necessarily has met with commercial success. Some of it is is simply... You know, or or like, let's say even an album that has one hit track on it, it's got, you know, 10 other tracks on it that aren't hits. Mm-hmm. So that would make up this music catalog that I'm talking about that the investor community is suddenly interested in. What do you think their interest is about in that catalog? I mean, what is it that makes that type of catalog attractive at this moment? I think some of this comes from a lot of these investors have been investing in music publishing assets for quite a while, and they're starting to see the recorded masters acting more like music publishing with the rise of of sound exchange, which operates very similar as a music publishing PRO does. Uh, it's very predictable income. And if you look at the revenue side of this, it took ASCAP and BMI 10 years to get you know, collectively over a billion dollars in domestic payouts, it took Town Exchange under 10 years to do that. So the investment community sees this as a tremendous opportunity to invest in assets that they may have undervalued a few years ago. And now they see the performance income, which is very familiar income to them, rising dramatically. They're far more interested in the master side than the music publishing, well, equally in the music publishing. I think the music publishing has probably gotten expensive for a lot of investors, so they're looking for value, looking for opportunity, and, and I think that's where the, the, the interest has come for the music, the master side now. Did you mean that the PROs took 100 years to get to a billion dollars? They took 100 years to get to. If you look at ASCAP and, and BMI, they both paid out about $600 million last year domestically each, 
and it took them a hundred years, almost a hundred years to get to that point. Wow. Whereas Sound Exchange got there in 10 years. Got there in 10 years, yes. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Another thing that strikes me as a label owner as something that might be appealing to the investors is the fact that catalog, master side catalog, doesn't carry any financial outlay with it. You don't have to grow an artist. You know, it's not like investing in a new album. Right. And, and, you know, when there's kind of two mindsets on when you look at music publishing investing, you have the companies that they basically buy music catalogs and sit on them and try to collect the money more efficiently. And then you have other companies that buy catalogs but then add the creative services around those or the value-add services, which would be sync and, and creative and signing new songwriters and all that kind of stuff to extract further value out of the catalogs and the writers that they have. So, you know, one is there's just two different strategies. One is just to really a buy and hold and collect, and the other one is to invest further in the creative kind of value-add process of music publishing. Jim Selby is the president of AdShare, and I was extremely happy that you joined us. Thanks so much for being on The Future of What? It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Portia. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Nick Drake, Eagle Eye Cherry, The Proclaimers, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. If you have a question you want answered on the show, please email us at thefutureofwhatshow at gmail.com. Our episodes are archived at killrockstars.com backslash thefutureofwhat, and you can subscribe to our podcast on Bandcamp. Our program is produced by John Sepulveda and Will Watts. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week. <laughs>